Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from London, I'm Isa Suarez in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Beijing breakup, Alibaba shares fall on reports China wants to split up its payment business. COVID confusion, corporate America asks for clarity on U.S. vaccine mandates. And screen versus stream, Disney unveils its new plan for movies. It is Monday, so let's make a move. Welcome once again, everyone. Happy Monday. Great to have you with us on this rather busy start to the week. And I want to start this today's show with a check, as we always do, a quick check of the markets. U.S. stocks are on track for pretty a solidly higher open as we count down, of course, to the opening bell on Wall Street, roughly 30 minutes or so to go. Europe is also higher right across the board. Let's have a look at the major U.S. averages and how they're set to bounce at open. We're expecting themselves to bounce after five straight days of losses for the Dow and the S&P. But look at how the last weeks have gone. Stocks fell last week on concerns, of course, that the Delta variant will slow economic growth even, of course, as inflation moves stubbornly higher. If we look at that, Dow 2.2%, SMB 1.7%, and the Nasdaq roughly the same. That's was a pretty rough and wild ride for stocks. The US releases, though, its updated look at consumer prices tomorrow. This will be a key data point for the Fed when it meets next week to discuss easing stimulus. Over in Asia, China's continuing crackdown on tech helped trigger a 1.5% percent drop, as you can see there, in the Hong Kong Hang Seng. Chinese electric vehicle firms came under pressure after Beijing warned that consolidation is needed in that sector. I want to show you Alibaba, though, because it fell on reports that Beijing wants to break up its financial Alipay unit. And that is where we're going to begin our drivers today. Beijing reportedly wants to split the super app Alipay into two parts. It wants one app for payments and then another app for loans. This latest regulatory crackdown targets one of China's largest fintechs. Alipay has more than 700 million active users a month and its parent company Ant Group controls over 50% of the country's mobile payments market. Claire Sebastian is on the story for us. Uh, Good morning to you, Claire. Let's talk more about uh, this latest story. More scrutiny, it seems, by Beijing on on big business. Explain to us what this means for the Ant Group, which is we've set out right there. It's a pretty big and profitable payment map. Yeah, this is a giant, Isa. And actually, this is one of the poster children uh, of this ongoing sort of increase in regulation that we're seeing from the Chinese authorities on their tech giants. Don't forget, Ant Group's what was going to be a blockbuster IPO last year was was shelved by the Chinese authorities. That was set to raise $37 billion in what was going to be the biggest share offering in history. So this move today really hits Ant where it hurts that the lending arm of the business, these two consumer lending products are actually more of a revenue driver than the original 
original function of the company, which is online uh, payment system. So this really hits them where it hurts. They're saying, apparently, according to the Financial Times, that they had already told them to separate out, separate out the back end of those lending products. Now they want to split them into a separate app, which would really affect how users、uh, sort of interact with Alipay, which is one of the most popular apps in China, a huge driver、uh, of e-commerce sales.、Uh, so that's one thing. They've also done another move here, where they're asking、uh, Ant to, to sort of turn over the user data that underpins their consumer credit reporting business. To a joint venture that's partly owned by the government. This is interesting in the context of what we've seen from the Chinese authorities with the likes of Didi. They're very concerned about consumer data, but this regulation, it's worth noting, isn't about collecting less user data or or sort of asking explicit permission, the likes of which we've seen in Europe. This is about control. The government wants that user data not only in the hands of these private companies. And I think, look, this is clearly the latest sort of volley of. Regulations that、yeah. we've seen in this ongoing crackdown—that's why you see uh, stocks, uh, Chinese tech stocks across the board down today. Even the likes of Tencent, whose WeChat Pay actually competes with Alipay. Yeah, and and Jack Ma, Claire, he has been pretty vocal、uh, about Chinese interference on business. Where does he stand on these latest moves? Any comments, given what what reports we're hearing from the Financial Times on this? Well, you know, Jack Ma, the the founder of, of Alibaba, and of course、uh, Ant Group, which which spun off from from Alibaba, he has really not been seen in public、uh, very much at all since last October, Isa, when he made a speech criticizing Chinese regulators, accusing them of stifling innovation. That it turned out was was a big mistake from him. Then the events that followed, the shelving of Ant Group's blockbuster IPO, Alibaba itself being hit with a record fine in in April. Jack Ma, in a way, the, the the sort of visionary founder, the flamboyant performer who symbolised the the rise of Chinese tech companies, the rise of prosperity in the company. Now, really, again, a poster child for what's happening now: the government trying to sort of rein in the power of these tech giants, take back control. He is a cautionary tale for many of these companies. This is why you see you see them falling in line, you know, going out of their way to show that they want to comply with with China's regulations. He is now a, a Symbol of the government trying to take back control. Well, as soon as you've heard anything from him, thanks very much. Let us do let us know. Claire Sebastian, there for us. Thanks very much, Claire. Good to see you. Now, a new CNN poll shows growing support for vaccine mandates in the United States. More than half of Americans, 54%, now say they agree that vaccination should be required for office workers returning to the workplace. Similar percentages support it for other situations, such as students attending in-person classes and people going to sports events or concerts. Meanwhile, the Consumer Brands Association, which really represents firms including the likes of Coca-Cola and Kellogg's, wrote to President Biden with a list of questions about this new vaccine. Monday, Christine Romans joins us now with more. We'll talk about that, those lists of requirements in、sure. just a minute, Christine. I really want to get a, your your a sense from you in terms of the mood in the United States regarding the vaccine mandates. You know, it's interesting. I think it's less divided than many people would think. You look at those poll、yeah. numbers, and it's very clear that a majority of Americans want vaccines, and they want people vaccinated at work. They want to know the person sitting next to them in the office when they return to the office is vaccinated. And I think that there is this feeling, a growing feeling. Companies have been nudging in this direction for some time, first encouraging, and then in some cases requiring vaccinations. But that there is this feeling that we will not get to back to normal without widespread adoption of these vaccines. 
vaccines. There's also a very clear understanding by the public here, I think, that every single infection that you see in this country and around the world is a chance for a new variant to develop and spread with maybe even more frightening speed than the Delta variant we're seeing now. So there is a new, renewed sense of urgency, I think, that people want to get back to normal and they know the vaccine is the way to do that, Isa. And it seems we, we seem to be, that seems to be reflected, at least, Christine, when I speak to CEOs in the last yeah. week saying, you know, we stand with President Joe Biden. In fact, this should have happened way sooner. Where does the rest, where does corporate America stand on this then? So they first started by encouraging, you know, vaccinations, and they were very patient with people who were vaccine hesitant. Mm. As that vaccine hesitancy is slowly starting to decline here, companies are being a little more bold. They are requiring more and more companies are requiring uh, vaccinations here. And if if you don't do the vaccine, then you have to do, you know, an expensive testing regime. In some case, I think the next step here is going to be companies requiring uh, their employees to bear some of the cost of those expensive testing regimes to push them into vaccination. We know that Delta Airlines, for example, announced in late August that it was going to spend $200 extra a month that was going to put on the health care tab of its employees, and that employee would have to spend $200 extra a month if they're not vaccinated. And Delta reports that 4,000 people got vaccinated even before that went into effect. So we know that the company leadership matters here and people start to to pick up the vaccine uh, a little bit more. We also know that there are a record number of open jobs in this country. So there are yeah. some industries where, especially in healthcare, frankly, where CEOs and managers are worried about mandates, um, sort of, you know, having people really dig in, you know, and maybe even leave their job. So far, we are not seeing data that support people leaving their jobs in big numbers because of a vaccine mandate. And clearly, if there's a federal guideline here uh, that the president announced last week, which again is requirements, not a true mandate for private sector workers, but requirements with testing, that sort of levels the playing field, right? If everybody has sort of a level playing field, then I don't think you're going to see the job hopping that some worry about. Yeah, Christine Romans for us there. Thanks very much, Christine. Great to see you. You're welcome. Now, Disney is optimistic about the return of Moviego, is the company announcing the rest of its 2021 films will be released in theatres before actually streaming on Disney's Plus. Frank Pelota has a detail. And Frank, this is clearly a sign that Disney is optimistic as well as confident that we all return to theatres, even though COVID cases, the Delta variant, is on the up in the United States. Yeah, that's exactly what the sign is here. Because at the end of the day, Disney of all of the studios could really blow this whole thing up. And what I mean by that is that if they really wanted to go directly to streaming, then they could. Like, the theaters really don't have leverages here when it comes to Disney. Disney is the top studio in terms of box office and power when it comes to Hollywood right now. So what I kind of read this as is Disney's looking at the tea leaves and saying to themselves... You know, the last couple of weeks, we've had good box office returns. Shang-Chi the, and The Legend of the Ten Rings, the new Marvel movie, has made a ton of money. Free Guy, another movie from Disney's 20th Century Fox, made a lot of money. Candyman, a horror movie, made a lot of money. So they're seeing this move all in generally the right direction, despite the COVID concerns. And Frank, do you know how long they will play before they go to streaming? Has that shifted somewhat? Are they delaying that? It looks to be around 30 days for some films like uh, Encanto, the new Lin-Manuel Miranda animated film, but mostly it's around 45 days, which is interesting because that's seemingly becoming the industry standard now. We have other studios like, uh, you know, 
out there who are doing uh, 45 days. Paramount is one of them. And that seems to be the new industry standard down from what used to be around 75 days. So a big move, but still a lot of exclusivity for theaters. Do you suspect then, Frank, that, you know, further studios will probably follow suit with, you know, come bring big screen first and then streaming, giving, given, of course, the, the box office that we've seen in some of these movies? Well, I mean, so goes Disney, so goes the rest of Hollywood. So I think there is something to be said about that. But I think that studios are already kind of doing this. I think what we're going to see moving forward is less of a theaters versus streaming and a mm. theaters with instead. Instead of a combat and a conflict, you're going to really see these guys coexist because I think the box office has shown that there still is a lot of money there. There is still a lot of money to get out of ticket sales. And I don't think streaming is at that point yet. Not to mention Disney's coming off of this huge kerfuffle lawsuit with uh, Scarlett Johansson. Box office easier. It's not as hard to make these deals in the old traditional sense compared to the new way, which is streaming. Frank Palotta there for us. Thanks very much, Frank. And there will be much, much more movie news later this show when I'll be speaking to the CEO of IMAX, Rich Gelfond. Stay around for that. First, though, let me bring in some of the stories making headlines right around the world. Japan says it is concerned by reports that North Korea successfully tested new long-range cruise missiles. North Korean state media report they were fired just over the weekend and hit targets 1,500 kilometers away, long enough to reach Japan. The U.S., South Korea and Japan said they're monitoring the situation. CNN's Paula Hancock is in Seoul for us this hour with more. And Paula, what more can you tell us about this missile test and critically how significant it is? Well, Lisa, North Korea, through its state-run media, as you say, said that it's happened over the weekend. They say that this is a new strategic weapon that's been in development for some two years. Now, we had seen in, in previous parades, one last January, one last October, that there had been new weapon systems uh, that were being unveiled at these military parades. Uh, now, we don't know for sure. Experts are still looking at the limited photographic evidence of this that we have from North Korea as to whether this is one of those uh, weapon systems that had been unveiled. But experts has been consistently telling us that they had to be tested. If North Korea was unveiling uh, these kinds of weapon systems, then they had to make sure uh, that they work. And we also heard just last month from the sister of the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, Kim Yo-jong. She said that uh, she was slamming the US and South Korea for holding these joint military drills Uh, even though Pyongyang had asked them not to hold these military drills. And she had said that they would face a more serious security threat. So we had been expecting some kind of of acting out or retaliation from North Korea. Uh, But of course, this does concern those in the region, as although it's not ballistic missile technology, which is banned under UN Security Council resolution, so technically it's not breaking any rules. It's still pushing North Korea forward in its weapons development. Isa. Paula Hancock's for us there in Seoul. Thanks very much, Paula. Now, a Pakistan International Airlines jet landed at the airport in Kabul, Afghanistan today before returning to Islamabad. The special flight was the first from neighboring Pakistan to land in Kabul since U.S. troops left the country two weeks ago. It offers some hope to Afghans who want to leave the country. Protesters gathered in Sao Paulo, Brazil on Sunday, calling for President Jair Bolsonaro to be impeached. (laughs) 
They're critical of Bolsonaro's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and his political attacks on the courts. Mr. Bolsonaro apologized for recent comments, saying they came from the heat of the moment. And still to come on first move, supply shocks, slowing productivity and high government spending. Harvard professor Ken Rogoff says today's economy looks a lot like it did in the 1970s, he'll explain. And yet another COVID mystery, a man tests positive after 21 days in quarantine. Both those stories after a very short break. Welcome back to First Move, everyone. Let me show you U.S. futures as we count down, of course, to the bell. Uh, and they remain on track for a higher open, as you can see there. The bull's really trying to regain the lost ground after last week's more than 2% drop for the Dow that I showed you at the beginning of the, of the show. It was the worst week, in fact, on Wall Street since June. So there are the futures looking all green hours right across the board, all hovering roughly around six-tenths of a percent. Investors really bracing for another hot read on consumer inflation tomorrow. A report out on Friday showed wholesale inflation jumping more than 8% year over year in August. That's the biggest monthly increase on record. And inflation fears are also playing into the ongoing negotiations in Washington over new fiscal stimulus. Democratic Senator John Manchin, Joe Manchin pardon me, raised fresh concerns this weekend over $3.5 trillion in proposed new social spending. He says it will boost inflation and cause budget deficits to soar. Reports say House Democrats are set to propose boosting the corporate tax rate from 21 percent to over 26 percent to help pay for the new programs. But the final stimulus price tag remains uncertain. Meantime, uncertainty over China's regulatory crackdown on business weighed on Asian shares. Claire Sebastian brought you that story at the top of the hour. The property firm Soho China fell almost 35 percent after Blackstone pulled the plug on a three billion dollar takeover bid. Blackstone backed out of the deal over concern that China might reject it. So plenty for us to get our teeth into this hour. Ken Rogoff joins me now. He is the professor of economics and public policy at Harvard University and also the former chief economist at the IMF. Ken, great to have you with you. Happy Monday with us. Happy Monday. Let's start on the data we expected today. Pretty busy week. Retail sales, consumer price index, all obviously painting a picture on spending and inflation. What's your reading uh, of what this may show regarding the economic recovery here? Well, I think all signs are pointing to that we're in a lull in the economic recovery. Uh, people, firms, uh, leaders don't know how to react to the Delta virus. We're adjusting. I, I will say I don't think that will go on forever. I think it's not a pleasant situation, but the economy will adjust. But inflation's likely to stay high, and the central bankers are trying to convince us, you know, it's temporary. But I think I think it's wor- more worrisome than they let on. That's interesting to hear. I mean, it's clear that the demand is unwinding. Consumers have become vaccinated, returned to work, uh, and clearly more inti- inclined to spend. Do you think, though, it, it's it's transitory, like the Fed believes, or do you suspect you will last for the rest of this year at least, Ken? So I think the problems are more deep-seated than the Fed lets on. Uh, We have a lot of parallels with the 1970s, which was the last time that we saw really high inflation. We're nowhere near there yet, but we have the slowing productivity. We have the supply chain problems. Uh, We had the great society in the United States back then. We have a big push to expand our social safety net now. 
and debt is a lot higher, which puts pressure on the central bank not to raise interest rates. Central banks can pull the plug on inflation. They do have the power to do that, but will they? Uh, there are a lot of pressures on the Fed, uh, less so, but still on the European Central Bank to sort of keep things going. And I, I think I'm not saying they're doing anything wrong now because I don't know how the recovery is going, but will they be able to pull things back? They say they're alert. They say they will. But I think the political pressures look more like the 70s to me than they do like the preceding decades. So I, I think the risks are higher than the market seems to be weighing in. And why do you think that in that case they're downplaying it? It's it's their job to try to hold everyone's expectations. Don't have wage increases mm. adjust for inflation. Don't charge higher interest rates because you think inflation's going to be really high. They really rely on holding down people's expectations. They call it anchoring expectations. And they've, they've done an amazing job of that. But th this is a this is a tough one that we're facing now. And they're trying to use all the you know goodwill they have, all the credibility they have. But I think the political forces are pretty powerful pushing against them. And I think it's tougher than people realize. So when you look at the next moves there, what, where do you expect them to go? I mean, I, I read your, the piece you wrote about the similarities, the parallels, I say, between the economic as well as foreign policies uh, of today uh, compared to the 1970s, uh, 70s. And it was pretty unsettling as I read it, I have to say. Well, it is unsettling. I mean, so one of the parallels I didn't mention was obviously the U.S. had suffered the loss of the Vietnam War. Yeah. And this time, Afghanistan's very painful. Uh, there had been a leader uh, who, you know, was pushing the uh, limits of the Constitution in the 1970s. We had one, you know, the last few years before President Biden. You, there's a there's a long list of parallels. And, you know, people think inflation's just a technical thing. It's a temperature switch. The policymakers can change it. It's 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 not. It represents the pressures in our economy. We need growth. And I'm sure the, you know, Biden administration feels they need to win the midterms and governments all over the place. And they, they haven't had that pressure in a long time. And it's it's here. Would you say then, Ken, I mean, I've, I've read some economists say that, you know, this accelerating inflation is the lesser of two evils. Are you of that thought? Well, actually, for the moment, I am. I mean, am I more worried about having inflation be 4% or that our economy goes into a tailspin, I would much rather have inflation be too high for a while. But I think that the risks that inflation does get too high are just underestimated. So it's it's not what's happening right now, but you know, think about uh, Jay Powell's, I think done a terrific job, but he's under a lot of pressure to sort of not tighten monetary policy. He's he's due to get reappointed any month now. There's a very good person waiting in the wings, Lael Brainerd. And, uh, you know, Powell doesn't keep things soft. Uh, Biden will certainly bring her in. And I and I think Lael, I have enormous respect for her. I think she'll be great if she's appointed. But she's probably uh, very much pushing to a softer tone. She's talked about raising the inflation target. And I think there are people around, you know, mm. doing that. I not, don't want to get into the details, but mm. the risks of having higher inflation are much more palpable over a few yeah. years 
not just over the few months. Ken Rogoff there for us. I wish we had more time, uh, Ken. Next time, we'll talk China. Great to see you. Thanks very Next much. Next time, China. Thank <laughs> the you. market open is after the break. Thank you, Ken. Welcome back to First Move. It's been a busy uh, first few 29 minutes or so. We'll have the opening bell shortly on Wall Street and it's expected to be rung today by global intelligence firm Black Sky. If we have a look, U.S. stocks, though, uh, they're beginning, expected to start the week with gains. All the major averages you can see there, them ringing the bell, are higher in early trading. Let's have a look at how they're faring. Major challenges await investors. You can see pretty uh, investors for this hour, including new inflation, as I was talking to Ken Rogoff there, and retail sales data. That is expected this week, plus the ongoing negotiations in Washington over new fiscal stimulus, as well as next week's Federal Reserve policy meeting. We're starting to see some moves, if we just stay on this for a minute, say moves on uh, on the markets. Dow Jones up tiny fraction. Same thing with the S&P. Uh, no moves as yet with the Nasdaq. Apple shares are higher, though, in early trading ahead of tomorrow's expected unveiling of the new iPhone. Apple fell 3% on Friday after a federal judge ruled that the company can't force firms to use its app store payment system. And now you can see green arrows, as we promised you, right across the board. Uh, Dow Jones up 7 tenths of a percent. Similar picture with the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq quickly catching up too. Now, the delicate balancing act of opening up and keeping the public safe has led to delays at airports. One company that's trying to make travel more seamless is Portugal's Vision Box. Its biometric contactless tech is present at more than 100 airports. The pandemic has only made the demand grow with plans to upgrade all of Britain's border crossings. Miguel Leitman is the CEO of Vision Box. He joins me now via Skype from Lisbon, Portugal. Miguel, great to have you on the show. Look, this is exciting. I've just come back from Lisbon a couple of months ago and I can tell you I would have liked everything to move much quicker. Some of your technology already used immigration uh, but now you're really going the next step. And then that's a stepping up with biometric boarding. Uh, boarding. Explain to viewers how this would work, Miguel. Yes, hello. Well, first of all, good afternoon and thank you for having me. So the, the, the biometric boarding is, is a follow, is the next step of what you consider an automated border control, where you extend the scope of uh, checking and, uh, and, and identifying um, passengers. Um, uh, to board an airplane, so it's it's uh, you can do any kind of checks at the point of the water control, but you can also do it extended throughout the whole journey of the passenger inside the airport. And the ultimate check is just before you board and you and you get into the airplane. So this is called seamless flow, uh, and um, it envisages that besides uh, um, the control itself being done by border authorities itself. You can extend this by involving stakeholders like airlines and like uh, airport uh, operators into that uh, seamless experience of the passenger, which increases, of course, the throughput and the security uh, in that experience. And we'll talk about the security in just a second, but I'm, I'm interested to know, is the pitch that you're making to airlines and to airports, Miguel, this will save you time? Or is it more along the lines of, you know, people want contactless, given the fears of a COVID? Which one is the stronger push here? 
Look, the, the, the automation of border control after 9-11 was just a first step, right? It's right. a means to increase uh, the security, identify passengers against uh, authenticated document. But you need to involve more stakeholders to make it even more secure and more quicker. So the pitch is, is security and uh, more convenience for the passenger. And with this, uh, the whole process being quicker. So it's it's a win-win uh, 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 situation for all the stakeholders, the, the passenger, mm. the border authorities, mm. the airlines and the uh, airport operator. So I'm guessing our, our viewers would probably say, OK, that sounds great. But what do you do as a company with the data, say passport photos, passports, COVID vaccinations? Because the concern, of course, will be people's privacy, data sharing and the whole ethics around this, Miguel. So you, you need to understand that um, and it, it's a very public uh, discussion going on and sometimes it's being oriented in the wrong way. If you point a camera towards a crowd, right, let's say inside an airport, you're not asking the system to identify that person, okay? You're just verifying if that expected passenger is the right owner of an authentic document and if he can be associated to the document. So we are not... We're not bringing in anything new. We are automating existing processes, which for decades have been done very, very thoroughly and very well, but uh, manually. So it's just a question of automation and biometrics is just a glue between all of those processes. Where finally, I think we are now at the step where the different stakeholders have identified that they can improve the whole system by working together. So collaboration, interoperation between those stakeholders and nations brings that into a much more secure and satisfactory experience for passengers. So we are not uh, storing data, we are not raising new data, we're just automating existing data that anyone of us, even yourself, when you travel, right, you need to bring your passport with you and you're presenting it uh, to the border authorities or you have uh, interacted with a, a country to which you have to apply for a visa. So all the data that you have to use in your, in your traveling is already there. So we are not, uh, as, a, as a solution provider, as a platform provider, we are not storing data. We are doing a service for different stakeholders and making sure that within the privacy recommendation that uh, it's expedited and it's much more secure than it is today. I'm glad you clarified that because, of course, that would be a concern for many people when we're talking about data, passports and COVID vaccinations and so forth. Uh, what does this mean, though, uh, Miguel, for airport infrastructure? I mean, how much is needed in terms of investment and infrastructure to make this work? Well, first of all, today, um, or let's, let's bring us about two years behind us, 2019, uh, starting uh, 2020. So the, the airports, the airlines, different stakeholders, they were, really, they were checking and, and understanding that this was the only way to move forward. Now, after the pandemic, it's actually the seamless technology, contactless technology is the only way you can bring trust back into traveling and bring passengers back into the airports and into the airlines. So it's not a question of how much, but uh, it's how quick and how efficiently you can bring people back into traveling. But I would say you know, airports uh, above 25, 50 million passengers a year, they would be investing today something like something between 50 cents to $1 per passenger to uh, implement this kind of, of technologies. Miguel Lightman, the CEO 
of Vision Box there for us in Lisbon. Thanks very much, Miguel. Obrigado. And we'll be back after a very short, short break. Bye-bye. The United Nations is holding an aid conference for Afghanistan in the hopes of raising $600 million in desperately needed humanitarian aid. Meantime, Qatar's foreign minister held talks with Afghanistan Taliban leaders on Sunday. It is the highest level foreign visit since the militants took over last month. And it comes as Afghan citizens are increasingly concerned about just what the Taliban's rules are now and how they'll run the country. Nick Robertson reports now from Kabul for you. Battered and bruised, Kabul journalists Nemat Nagdi and Tariki Derayabi show the results of a beating they say came at the hands of the Taliban. The pair were covering an anti-Taliban protest when they were hauled away to a police station. They were hitting me with extreme force and I really thought that this was the end of my life. My left eye has been hurt so seriously that it is still red and I am worried that I can't hear anything in my left ear. Both feel victim of crossing an invisible line of what the Taliban will permit and what they won't. They declared to the journalists in a press conference that they will be granted permission to continue with their activities, but only under the Islamic rules. In Afghanistan's north, the powerful new Taliban police chief in Masari Sharif admits even he doesn't know the limits of his powers. Until now, we have not received any specific orders from our chiefs. We are following the rules of the Emirate. There isn't specific ban on anything. Across Afghanistan, people are becoming increasingly worried. The Taliban have little idea beyond religious principles about how to run the country and may even be divided over how to do it. There's no work, there's no trade, and people have lost confidence, this man says. No solid economic plan has been presented to the people. People have no proper understanding of the Taliban's plans. We can see that their cabinet has not yet been completed. What we can deduct is there are internal differences within the structure of the cabinet, and this in itself adds to the concerns people already have, he says. A mix of fear and fatalism appears to be filling the void. Some Kabul residents are ignoring the Taliban's previously strict dress codes. No idea if it's okay or what could happen if they're caught. The lesson of the two journalists, while the Taliban are dithering, potentially infighting, use every last moment of freedom. The journalists will not stop. They are people who convey the voice of the population. It is possible that from now on the Taliban threaten and torture journalists. The continuation of their activities will be deemed as a danger to their government. An interim government that has yet to fully find its feet. Nick Robertson, CNN, Kabul, Afghanistan.
Still to come, coping with COVID in the winter months. Britain is set to uh, plan out its amidst challenges, not just from the pandemic, but also Brexit. What is the plan? We'll have more after this. Now, Disney is betting that moviegoers are ready to return to theatres. It says all new 2021 movies will be shown first in cinemas before streaming. The box office success of Marvel blockbuster Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings suggests that Disney's bet could pay off. Shang-Chi raked in $5.3 million for IMAX last weekend, this after breaking box office records when it opened last week. Joining me now is Rich Gelfon. He is the CEO of IMAX. Rich, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, as we as we just mentioned, Disney clearly releasing the rest of their movies this year before streaming. Uh, a sign of confidence, no doubt. How confident are you that now is the time to do this? I'm very confident. I think a lot's happened in the last week, a number of things. First of all, as you mentioned, uh, Shang-Chi had a terrific um, worldwide global box office opening two weeks ago and followed by a low drop the second week. Then Venom, a Sony film, moved up three weeks. Bond reconfirmed that it's opening in late September. And then a week later in the rest of the world, uh, in the UK, it's in late September. Um, and then you have uh, the reception of Dune at the Venice Film Festival. Um, you have Spider-Man coming. You have Disney changing its windowing to much more pro-theatrical. They read the data and they understood how well the theaters were coming back. And it all has come together. So I think this is an inflection point. But, you know, they looked at the data and they've noticed this is the time. But at the same time, you're still seeing a rise in, at least in the U.S., in the Delta variant of cases. Does that worry you at all? I mean, of course, uh, you want your customers to feel safe. And mm. that's the most important thing, obviously, on a global basis. But the opening of Shang-Chi, the, the holiday weekend, was $90 million, which is wow. the best opening weekend in the whole pandemic. In the U.S., internationally, it did really well. IMAX is in 84 countries. It did very well for us. And then this was the best second weekend in the whole pandemic for us. So, you know, I think the issue with COVID all overall, it's moved from a phase which involved lockdowns and, you know, uh, is it going to be open or closed? to more or less how you deal with it. And I think mm. vaccinated people and especially moviegoers who tend uh, to be younger and probably have less underlying conditions, they're coming back. And I think, you know, that's the question. You, at some point, you've got to figure out how to be a little bit more nuanced. And I think now that's happening. Is that the trend that you're seeing, Rich? You're seeing the younger, the younger crowds coming back. They're slightly more relaxed uh, compared to what you would have seen pre-pandemic? You know, I don't have um, scientific data on that point, but you look at the franchises people are coming back for, like F9 um, did extremely well, um, Shang-Chi, This Weekend, Free Guy. Um, these are more you know, aimed to people um, in their 30s and younger, and they're turning out. It's, it's just a hunch. I suspect if it was a franchise that was aimed for older people, it wouldn't be quite as yeah. robust because of concerns. But you look at other things, you look at concerts, you look at sporting events. Um, at least in the U.S., people are really coming out. I went to the U.S. Open uh, men's final yesterday here in New York, and you couldn't find a mask 
you had to be vaccinated. But it just seems like people are getting back on with their lives. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I can speak. I, I haven't seen Shang-Chi, I have to say. I, I want to see it. My makeup artist was saying it's phenomenal. I'm really looking forward to Bond. I think so many people here, and I normally see Bond in a theatre. Uh, so that must be something you're really looking forward to, no doubt. That kind of demand. We are. And, you look, you know, the, there's a lot of pent up demand on a global basis. And Bond has been one of those movies that people really want to see. And I, as I said, it was a number of turning points. But I think yeah. a really key thing was when MGM and the Broccoli's announced that Bond wasn't moving and staying. And I think that led to this domino effect where a lot of people feel confident on both ends of it. Rich, how does the, the demand compare internationally? If we, you know, if you focus on China, Europe, how is that moving? Is that moving at completely different speed, roughly in line with your, what you're seeing in the United States? Well, Asia has moved much quicker um, than any area of the world. And Japan had its highest grossing uh, movie ever, Demon Slayer, um, during the pandemic, believe it or not, as hard as that is to believe in, it was the highest grossing IMAX film. Might <laughs> as well has done very well. Uh, the United States is you know, just turning now in a very positive way. Uh, the UK has been sort of a leader um, uh, internationally in terms of reopening. I think Latin America and India are a little slower and other places in Europe are starting to come back. I mean, I was reading, correct me if I'm wrong, IMAX China, uh, I mean, done particularly well, $19 million profit in the first half compared with a year earlier loss. I mean, what can you learn from this success? I mean, what has worked here, Rich? I mean, clearly what's worked is where people feel safe and there's good content, they want to go back to the movies. I mean, you know, I know people like sitting on their couches and they like eating in their kitchens, but we're a social people globally. I mean, we like culture. We like to congregate. We like to be with friends and family. And I think where they're safe, they want to come back. I think we're all tired of sitting on our couches. I can tell you that much. I speak for myself at least anyway. Rich Gelfon, great to see you, the CEO of IMAX. Thanks very much, Rich. Thank you, Isa. Now, the British Prime Minister is preparing to announce how the country will deal with the coronavirus in the coming months. New COVID-19 cases have fallen slightly, but remain relatively high, as you can see there with that graph. More than 29,000 new infections were reported on Sunday. Deaths have ticked up, but are a lot lower than during previous waves. 56 were confirmed on Sunday. Nina De Santos is in London with more. Uh, so Nina, we're hearing that the government, the UK is set to announce a COVID plan for autumn and winter. What can we expect this, this plan to entail, Nina? Well, we know we can expect about uh, 24 hours before they announce it. It's supposed to be announced tomorrow afternoon, UK time, uh, Isa. But you can imagine in typical Boris Johnson style, we'll certainly see uh, quite a few headlines leaking probably to the British press overnight to try and test out some of these policies to see how much pushback they'll get. Really, what we're expecting is for that... Uh, passport, vaccine passport scheme that was supposed to be rolled out to places like nightclubs, those confined spaces, to finally be shelved. That was what we saw uh, in the British press overnight, confirmed by the health secretary earlier, uh, that that will be, at least for the moment, completely out of the way. Uh, the government have done a big U-turn on the issue of vaccine passports, but we're also expecting Boris Johnson, perhaps flanked by, you remember the usual characters, 
Chris Whitty, the Chief Medical yeah. Officer, Sir Patrick Valance, the Chief Scientific Officer on either side, like in the peaks during the pandemic of last year. Uh, it's likely that he's going to be talking about lockdown legislation, perhaps removing some of the last vestiges of the most draconian measures, but leaving enough lo uh, leeway for another lockdown to be implemented over the parts of the UK that Westminster has jurisdiction over. Because remember, other parts of the UK, like Scotland, can set their own rules on things like public mm. health. Uh, if the case numbers start to spike later on in the year. Now, we do know in preparation for all of this, he said, just in the last hour or so, we've had news that the chief medical officers have now overruled the vaccine committee, which initially, about a week and a half ago, said that they weren't going to be recommending uh, vaccines for 12 to 15 year olds on the first week that they go back to school. Now we know that they bounced that decision over to the chief medical officers and they have decided to recommend these vaccines for 12 to 15 year olds. Just one shot of Pfizer's vaccine so far. Question is whether or not parents Will give their consent on a case-by-case -case basis to allow their children to be vaccinated. That's right, yes, absolutely. So many parents wanting to see uh, what exactly was happening when it comes to vaccinating their children. Nina, I want to switch gears slightly and, and give you a sense uh, and, get, and, get, and ask you about what we've seen in terms of the consequences of Brexit. Uh, we have seen many businesses really struggling over the summer. Give us a sense of how bad it is in terms of up and down the country. Well, this has been a sort of creeping concern that you see with empty supermarket shelves. Yeah. Um, some of the big furniture companies like IKEA have been complaining of shortages. We even saw some of the big restaurant chains like McDonald's, Nando's, a, a chicken restaurant here in the UK, saying that they've run out of certain supplies and are having to change the menu to deal with these supply chain issues. The UK is currently in the grips of a huge shortage of truck drivers. Uh, this is partly because of a shortage of labour coming over from the EU in a post-Brexit era where many uh, people who might have come from, say, Eastern Europe to try and help out with the harvests of fruit that happens at this time of year or also to drive those big trucks over from the European continent, they're not coming anymore. And that situation has been exacerbated by COVID rules as well. So we're seeing a lot of fresh mm. produce uh, associations warning that they're having to throw away items. We're seeing, as I said, even hardware stores saying that they're having to curtail their ranges. And this is something that is going to get more and more concerning as we head towards the end of the year, Isa. Yeah, indeed. Thanks very much, Nina. Nina De Santos there. That's it for me. Do stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 